Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad you guys are all here. And uh, welcome to those who are watching on the live stream as well. Uh, let's run through uh, a few announcements and then I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get into worship. So first of all, you have uh, the guest registers at the end of your row. If you could uh, grab that, sign that, pass that down to the people who are sitting next to you. If you want to take your attendance uh, electronically, there's a QR code in there for that. If you're going to give electronically this morning, there's also a QR code uh, for that in the uh, book as well. So a uh, couple things about schedule today. There is no youth confirmation, and uh, tonight there's no adult confirmation because of the chili and game night that Jen told us about last week is happening tonight at 5 o'clock p.m. So uh, everybody feel free to come and join us here for that. That'll be a good time. The other thing, and this, is, uh, this did not make it into the bulletin, but just a reminder, the Ash Wednesday uh, service, 7 o'clock this Wednesday evening, uh, kicking off Lent. Today's uh, Transfiguration Sunday, and so um, we're going to start uh, heading towards uh, Passion Week and the cross, and uh, next week we'll uh, continue meeting on Wednesday evenings all the way up until Holy Week. So I think that's all the announcements that I have. Let's go ahead, and uh, I'm going to open us in prayer. And then we'll stand and sing the opening hymn. Father, be with us this morning as we come to meet you uh, with our fears, with um, our lack of conviction that things are going to go well, our lack of conviction that we're actually going to be free from sin, that we could ever live in a world where justice and righteousness rules. Convince us through the power of your word. Uh, this morning by meeting with us personally, that you are in charge, that you are the sovereign God who rules over the universe. And we, in turn, will give you praise and thanks for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the opening hymn.
continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we worship you, we glorify you, we give you thanks for your great glory. O Lord God, King of heaven, Father Almighty, Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world. Receive our prayer and have mercy on us, for you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone, Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, are most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. 
So the Old Testament reading is from Exodus 24, and it has a, a really, really unfortunate division of the, of the reading. The first part of it's been cut off. Actually, there's a covenant ceremony here where there's a sacrifice, and blood is taken from the sacrifice, and some of the blood is thrown on the altar in God's direction, which puts God underneath the terms of the covenant. God promises to be faithful. Some of the blood is thrown in the direction of the people. Unfortunately, in the pericope, they, whoever did this however many years ago, cut off the part about the blood being thrown towards God, and so you only get the human half of the covenant. So let me just remind you that, that going into Exodus 24, verse 8, God himself says, I will be faithful to the covenant too. And verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people also and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, Revelation reading. This is Revelation 12 through 14. A lot of this, of course, like the rest of Revelation, um, difficult. Don't get bogged down in the details. Don't get stuck wondering, like, what does this detail mean? Just kind of uh, uh, get a taste of the, the vibe of the whole thing. And I'll just, we're going to start off here with a description of Jesus being born. And uh, just to point out that uh, this is Revelation, again, to point out, is not just about the future. It's about stuff that's happened in the present and stuff that's happened in the past as well too. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems, horns in the Old Testament as well as in the book of Revelation, symbols of power, might and power. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Chapter 13, the two beasts. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who, could not, who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slaved, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark, 
That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It's these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who can meet those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 17. Glory to you, O Lord. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn. My Savior's love, what song of angels could describe? Could endless praises be enough to echo full his sacrifice? How worthy is the Lamb of God beyond all might or skill or pen? Still we confess and strain towards such a mystery and
may be seated. Revelation 12 through 14, we've, uh, we're right in the middle of, there's a break in between this pattern of sevens. We had the seven seals. We had the seven um, uh, trumpets. We're going to have the seven bowls starting in chapter 15. And just a reminder that each one of those patterns of seven tells the story of the world. It tells the story of God's fight with Satan over his creation. It tells the bad stuff that's happening. It tells about God's victory. And then it circles back and retells the same story again. Chapters 12 through 14 are going to do the same thing. It's going to tell the story from the very beginning. Uh, Jesus being born. Satan being cast out of heaven. To the very end, Jesus coming to rule and reign. So just these, these, they're, they're cycling back on themselves over and over again and creating layers, different nuance, different images Chapters 12 through 14, the image, the, the emphasis here is on the political and cultural powers that Satan has recruited to help him in his fight against Jesus and the saints. That's the emphasis of chapters 12 through 14. So this is going to be, I'm uh, trying to do things different to make sure that these um, sermons are timely and that I can talk slow enough that uh, people actually can hear what I'm saying, which has been a struggle in this Revelation series. So this, is, this might end up being, I'm, I've tried to do something a little bit more uh, luxury this time and less preachy, and uh, we'll see how this goes. You guys can give me feedback uh, in adult Bible study afterwards. But chapter 12, there's a, a woman, there's a baby, and there's a dragon. And chapter 13 is um, the two beasts, and then chapter 14 is going to focus on the lamb and the 144,000. So let's look at chapter 12 real quick first. We meet a woman. She has 12 stars in her, in her crown. Um, you might think at the beginning that she represents Mary because she's giving birth to a baby who's going to rule the world. Um, that's probably not necessarily what's going on here. She's with the 12 stars. She represents God's people. Definitely Mary was one of God's people. But this is God's people here. Also, uh, the dragon is going to try to kill the woman. And she's going to run away. Uh, she's going to be uh, protected in the wilderness. We meet, so we meet this woman. She's clothed with the sun and moon. Um, twelve, uh, Like I said, 12 stars in her crown. She represents God's people. She's the woman that God has called to fix the world. Abraham and his children, uh, including me and you today. She's going to give birth to a baby. The baby is going to rule the world with a rod of iron in verse 5. Hopefully we've read Psalm 2 enough in the past month or so that you'll recognize echoes from Psalm 2, this promise that God through his Messiah will rule the nations with the rod of iron. Yes, in fact, this is Jesus. Verse 5, if you look at this, it's actually the shortest. If you, if you were trying to compact the life and ministry of Jesus into one verse, this is basically the only way you could do it. Verse 5 says, she gave birth to a male child. 
One is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So you have the birth of Jesus, and then you have uh, the reign of Jesus ruling the nations with the rod of iron, and then you have his resurrection and ascension. He's caught up to God's throne. This is not, by the way, escapist language. The, the baby has not escaped. The fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God means he now rules and reigns over all things. So the life and ministry of Jesus compacted into one verse. The dragon wants to destroy the baby in verse 12, but is unsuccessful. He's defeated, and he's thrown down to earth. He's, he and his angels are defeated, so he's thrown down to earth. He still has fight left in him. He's been mortally wounded. When Jesus dies and rises from the dead, it's a guarantee that Satan loses. But like a mortally wounded beast, he still has some fight left in him. And he comes up with a new strategy at the end of chapter 12, which is he's going to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring. That's me and you. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, which leads us into chapter 13. The sea is the place where chaos happens, where monsters rise up from the deep to attack God's people. More on that in just a second. This, this leads us to chapter 13, where we meet these two beasts. Satan recruits Two beasts, a beast from the sea and a beast from the land to help him fight against God's people. The beast from the sea uh, is described in chapter 13, verses one through 10. And what this beast is, is political authority, the political authority of this world in service of Satan to oppress God's people. Let me point out a few things about this beast. First of all, imagery from Daniel chapter seven. Did you guys notice this? This beast has 10 horns and seven heads. Uh, verse one, verse two, the beast uh, the, that John sees is like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Um, it would be a mistake to stop here and say, okay, so what does the leopard stuff mean? Why does it have bear parts? Instead, what you should be hearing again is echoes of Daniel chapter seven. Now we've read this several times since we started the Revelation series and I'll say this again. If you wanna understand the book of Revelation, you really have to read Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel chapter seven, you'll remember that Daniel has this vision and out of the sea is coming a series of four beasts. One is like a leopard, one is like an eagle. The last is like, a, 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 the, the last has these great iron teeth with 10 horns coming out of his head. What happens is, is that John takes this vision and sees all those beasts as one beast. Well, what were the beasts in Daniel chapter seven? Do you remember? It's a series of pagan empires. Uh, um, Assyria, I couldn't remember their name for a second. Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia. And most Jewish scholars of Jesus' day interpreted the last beast with the 10 horns to be the Roman Empire. John sees these beasts coming up out of the sea as one beast, but you know who it is. In Daniel, it's these political kingdoms that come up to enslave God's people, so you know what it is in Revelation. It's the big political kingdom that has enslaved God's people. It is the Roman Empire. Second thing is, this beast demands worship. You remember this uh, from our reading of chapter 13 as well. The beast is haughty, blasphemous, has authority that he can exercise for 42 months, if you were here last week, you know what that means. You know what the number 42 means. Uh, you can go back and check that out if you don't. The beast also 
is, uh, claims to be God. This is the way the Roman emperors were. The Roman emperors claimed divine authority. The, 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 the coins that the Roman emperors minted would have Phileas Devi printed on them, son of God. They claimed to be divine. So also this beast. There's no room for other gods. You, you can have other gods. In the Roman Empire, you could worship any sort of local deity that you wanted. You could abandon those deities too if you wanted. But there was one deity that you could never abandon. And that was Caesar. Everybody was forced, especially by the time of Domitian, by John's time, everybody was forced to come and confess that Caesar was Lord. That you could worship Yahweh if you wanted to in the privacy of your own home or in your synagogue. But everybody in the whole country, the whole empire would be required to worship Caesar. This is a God, this beast demands worship. This beast's authority apparently can't be defeated. In verse three, he's described as having a head that seems to have received a mortal wound, but miraculously, he comes back to life. I think this is a reference to the Nero reborn myth. In the 70s and 80s of, of the, uh, uh, AD of the Roman Empire, there was a myth that Nero would someday come back. Nero was this extremely powerful emperor that ruled in the 60s. He died in 68 AD. Right after Nero died, there was a series of, uh, um, a, a sequence of very, very weak emperors, one after the other. 69 AD is known as the year of the four emperors in Roman history, who were powerless. And there was this dream that one day a powerful emperor like Nero would come back. So it was actually a, quite common for people to hope for and to believe in this Nero reborn myth. By the time John writes, Nero's been dead for a long time, but John knows that Nero does get reborn. Maybe not exactly as Nero the guy, but as a sequence of Roman emperors, each growing in their capacity for evil, each one growing in their demands for personal worship, each one growing in their lust to crush any sort of authority that would come up against them, especially people who refused to confess that they were Lord, but that some other king who they thought that they had already killed was still Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Also, apparently this beast is, you can't, you can't beat this beast. They die, but they just keep on coming back, Nero after, uh, Caesar after Caesar. You also can't escape this beast. Verse seven of chapter 13, the uh, beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Well, you've already seen that language back in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter five. You'll see it again in Revelation chapter 14. That's Jesus' language. Jesus is the one who rules over every tribe and tongue and nation. And yet here, the Caesar rules over the entire world. He claims to, in some sort of fake, shallow imitation of the real Jesus, he wants to be Jesus. He wants to be the ruler of all the nations. Like Satan, when Satan tempts Jesus, remember in Luke uh, chapter, at the beginning of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them, Satan tells Jesus, I have authority over the whole world and I'll give you that authority. Jesus doesn't play ball with him, but Jesus knows, actually, I have authority over the whole world. You can pretend like you do, but you actually don't. You actually function as, and you always have been, an angel. You've never been a sovereign. Nero, borrowing the dragon's authority, borrowing Satan's fake authority, claims to rule over the whole world. Fourth thing, and the most important thing you can get from this first beast, is back of the power of bad political authority is Satan himself. Back of the power of Nero is Satan himself. Back of the power of every bad political authority ever is Satan himself. I know that you and I think of... Um, 
most of us think of like history as kind of a rational thing. It's a material, there's cause and effect. There are some rulers who are bad. We can call them evil. You're free to call Adolf Hitler evil if you want. But his, his rise is, is to some extent random. We know that there are bad leaders in the United States as well, whether it's presidents or judges or Congress people or mayors or governors. We know that there are bad people, but that happens from time to time. You're gonna get some good eggs, you're gonna get some bad eggs. And what John wants us to see is that back behind all the bad political authorities is actually Satan himself. Some of you know this. I've never heard this from anybody in here, but I, I do know of people who subscribe to kind of the wacko fringe conspiracy theories about, you know, there's some sort of cabal behind all the political forces in the world that have them all working together for some secret, uh, you know, bad purpose. And that actually is, I'm not, I, I, I think it's probably, probably not correct to look for a, another human agency behind all the governments of the world. But there is a bad, evil cabal behind the governments of this world, and his name is Satan. It's the dragon. The beast of this world rule in the name of the dragon. Well, then we meet the beast from the land at the back half of chapter 13. This is probably the local leaders whose job it was to enforce the authority of the Caesar. After all, Caesar wasn't going to travel around to Asia Minor or to Syria or to Judea or to, to Macedonia. But instead, he had these local governors whose job it was to point to the first beast and say, everybody worship the first beast, and to make signs that made it clear the first beast deserves worship and must be worshiped or you will be punished. This beast from the land is probably, this beast from the land exercises cultural and economic authority to enforce the worship of the first beast and thus the worship of the dragon himself. It imitates Jesus in verse 11. This beast actually has two horns like a lamb. This is what the local beasts do. They pretend like they're messiahs. We have this all throughout our culture, and I've, done these, I've given you these examples before, so I'm not gonna belabor them right now. There's tons of pop songs which promise you that romance can do what Jesus promises you he can do, save you. You're the light in my deepest, darkest hour. My savior when I call. This uh, language from the Bee Gees. There's also gurus, there's advertising, there's motivational speakers which promise you that you can be saved if you buy this product, if you exercise this way, if you join this group. You have to play ball with the current cultural system if you wanna be saved. Imitation of Jesus is the fuel on which the false kingdoms run. And also finally, you have the application of economic pressure. The beast tells in verses of chapter 13, verses 16 through 18, the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is almost certainly not a literal mark like I was told when I was growing up or uh, some sort of like a QR code implanted on the skin or some sort of chip implanted under the skin. It's the name of the beast. It's the name of the, the emperor who rules and reigns, and if you don't play ball with him, if you don't acknowledge his divinity, his authority, his supreme ability to rule over the world, then you will be squeezed out of the economic system. You will lose your job. You will lose the ability to be active in the marketplace. We see this happen all the way from, from John's day all the way to our own day throughout church history. If anybody crosses the demonic forces which try to rule the world, one of their favorite one of their favorite tactics is to make sure that you will lose your job, knowing that all people are tempted to worship the God of money. 
And when confronted with the question, should I be faithful to Jesus or should I keep my job, we are all conflicted with great existential crisis. The thought of losing my job and my economic security is the one thing that pulls people closer and closer to worshiping the beast than just about anything else outside of maybe the threat of physical harm. The beast knows this and is threatening God's people with economic exclusion if they do not play ball. All evil systems use these same powers. And I'm glad to hear when some of you talk that you started uh, using the language of idolatry from the Bible, the language of money, sex, and power. Absent God, absent the one true God, the system will use the temptation to be fulfilled with the gods of money, sex, and power in order to be fulfilled. Our culture long ago has abandoned God, and as a result, this is the, these are the three great gods of our culture, along with the three great prophets of our culture who still, hundreds of years on, their emphasis is still felt in the way that average, ordinary people think. Marx tells us that the only thing, that there is no God, the only thing is money, property. And we believe him, even if you're not a Marxist, which most of you aren't, we still believe in that category. That the, one, the thing that we disagree about with Marx is the way to get money. We do agree with him, though, that happiness depends upon money and personal property. Freud says there's no such thing as God. All that exists is sex. And maybe you're not a Freudian. Most people aren't. Very, very rare Freudians, even in the psychological industry today. But we still all believe it. I can only be happy if I'm sexually or romantically fulfilled. Nietzsche comes along and says there's no such thing as God. The only thing that exists is power. And the three great prophets, their voices ring down through the years, and we all subscribe to this. There is no God. No, you guys believe that there is a God, of course, but, and he's got his job. He's up there in heaven. He's preparing a place for us. Meanwhile, down here on earth, if we're going to be happy, we have to have money, sex, and power. It's no, it's no reason that if you watch TV or you listen to music or if you just examine the things that go on in your own head, money, sex, and power are the things that constantly bounce around in there. It was the same thing for John. The beast and the dragon know that if they want to enslave people, money, sex, and power is the way to do it, and they offer all three of these things. Before we move on from chapter 13, I guess I have to mention the number 666. What does this mean? It's the number of a man, John tells us. It's a sign. Most scholars today agree that 666, oh, first I have, to, I have to explain to you how this works. In the ancient world, uh, actually before Arabic numerals, most languages in the ancient world used letters, individual letters from their alphabets for numbers. For those of you who are uh, uh, Gen X or older, you'll remember having to learn Roman numerals when you were in school. For what reason? I don't know, just to tell which Super Bowl is which, I guess. That's about the only application I can think of for Roman numerals. Uh, the Hebrew had, Hebrews did the same thing. It's very, very, it's a much simpler system than the Romans. In, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, if you see a number, what's happened is, is well, the first letter of the alphabet, Aleph, represents number one. The second letter, Beth, represents number two, and so on. And so you get up to number 10, and then number 11 represents, you're getting into multiples of hundreds at this point. If you take the number 666, actually, if you take the name Nero Caesar, and you compute it in Hebrew numerology, it comes out to 666. Almost certainly this is a backhanded reference to Nero. John wants to make it more vague because John knows that there's more Neros than just Nero. There's more Neros than just the one Nero. After all, by John's day, Nero's dead, and now it's Domitian. But Nero stands as this sort of beast, 
this agent working for Satan, demanding worship. There's, the other angle on it is this. So like I said, almost all scholars agree that 666 means two things. One is it's actually the Hebrew number reference to the name Nero Caesar. The second is this, is if seven is the perfect number and God can be described as a seven, 666 is the closest that a human can get to being God, but not quite there. Nero wants to be God, but the closest he can get is a 666. Nero wants every tribe and tongue and nation to, 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 to bow down in his name, but he can't quite get there. After all, there's people in North America who don't even know he exists. There's people in Africa and Asia who aren't interested in him at all. He wants to be God. He tries to be God. He makes about as good a run at it as you can get, but he can't quite get there. Just like his boss, the dragon. Satan wants to be God. He wants to rule and reign over the universe, but he never, he never can quite get there. He's always, he always ends up at the end of the day defeated, which brings us, his defeat brings us to chapter 14, the lamb and the 144,000. We've already met the 144,000 God's people. We've already, met the, we've already met the lamb in chapter 14, verse one. The lamb is the one who has been slain for the sins of the world, and because of that is now worthy to receive worship and praise and honor and glory. He's been defeated, and unlike Nero, he comes back for real. Nero dies, Nero's powerful, but Nero dies, he can't come back. Jesus dies, he can come back. Therefore, Jesus is the Lord of the universe, way more than, uh, in, in categories that Nero can't even approach. There's three things I wanna mention about chapter 14. Again, I know I'm doing a bad job explaining details. If you're interested in the details, again, adult Bible study afterwards. Three big things I wanna point out to you from Revelation 14 in the work of the Lamb and the 144,000. First of all, the focus of chapter 14 is God's judgment. God promises he will judge the nations. He will exact his revenge. You and I are not to exact revenge. The only thing, that, the only thing psychologically that keeps us from wanting to exact revenge when people do harm to us is the knowledge that there is a God who has promised he will exact revenge someday. We read chapter 14 and we read about this, this uh, bloody wrath that the lamb is gonna execute on his enemies. And part of us nice Westerners wanna say, geez, it's kind of hard. It's a little bit brutal, isn't it? I don't know if I like that. Well, of course, you're not supposed to like it. The problem, though, is that we assume, by assuming that this is a little bit overkill on God's part, we're assuming that, re that, that, that rebellion against God is not that big of a deal. God, you're kind of overdoing it. You kind of calm down. You kind of lost your... All they are is rebelling against you. That's it. And what we forget, because we too are, rebe are rebels, is that rebellion against the king of the universe is high treason and is worthy of this wrath. God's not overreacting. It's the punishment that's commensurate with rebellion against him. The other thing is that it's easy for white people in the West to be, come on, everybody just be nice. After all, we're convinced, some people in our culture are convinced that it's Christianity and it's message of God's judgment that convinces Christians to be violent. But like Miroslav Volf, the great Croatian philosopher who still teaches at Yale, I, I believe, writes, actually, if you, weren't living in the if you weren't living in America, if you were living like him in the middle of the Croatian Civil War, and you saw your friends slaughtered and their bloody bodies lying lifeless in the street, you would know that a God who did not take vengeance on evil is not a God wor worth worshiping. A God who's nice, who looks at Adolf Hitler and says, oh, geez, I don't want to overreact. He's a bad guy, but really, 
let's just all be nice to each other, is not a God worth worshiping. The only God worth worshiping is a God who says, I will undo all the evil of the universe. I will make good again all the bad things that have happened. All those who have done all the evil in the world, all the Hitlers, all the rapists, all the, uh, uh, all the pedophiles who have not repented, I will exact vengeance upon them. Our heart craves this. Our heart craves our own sins to be judged. I want my sins to be punished and done away with. And there's only two ways for that to happen. One is for God himself to take that revenge on himself, to take that punishment on himself on the cross, to take the penalty of my sin on himself and to bear the weight of that. Rejecting that, though, the only other way for that to be dealt with is for God to punish me. And that's what's happening in Revelation chapter 14. Babylon falls. The kingdoms of this world, world will not stand forever, uh, forever. Verse eight, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon almost certainly is Rome. Babylon is the great enemy from the Old Testament who enslaved God's people and put them in exile. In John's day, Rome, the Roman Empire is the same one. In our day, who is it? There's political forces. It's, it's always kind of complicated. Um, I don't know. It's worth exploring. We can do that later. But, there are, but, but Satan is still active. And the Neros of this world still rule and reign. Second thing from Revelation 14, the eternal sovereign reign of Jesus. Look at Revelation 14, verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man. Okay, by now, I've mentioned Daniel 7 enough, hopefully, that you don't think of like Jesus floating around in the sky, sitting on a cloud, you know, kind of like lounged out on a cloud. It's actually Daniel 7, a language. The son of man sitting on the cloud is the one who is at the right hand of the ancient of days, who rules and reigns over everything in a way that makes Nero's rule and reign look, shadow, uh, look shallow and empty. This is Jesus. Jesus has determined to rule and reign over all things. He began it on the cross. He guaranteed it at the resurrection. He will make it good, eternal, and permanent on the last day when he returns to rule and reign. But Jesus also shares this victory with his people, with me and you. In verses 12 through 13, another, um, uh, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who can keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Which brings us to the question, what are you and I to do now? Can you and I fight against the Neros of this world? Can you and I fight against the economic system of the American empire? Can you and I fight against the political system? Oh, I know you can vote. I know you can spend the tiny amount of money that we all have. But what can we do fighting against the great beast of this world, against the dragon who empowers those beasts? And the answer is back in chapter 12. Look at this with me and then we'll be done. Verses 10 through 11, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the Satan, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is going to be defeated. And how is he gonna be defeated? Who is the one who defeats Satan? And everybody says at the same time, it's Jesus, and everybody's right, of course, but it's more complicated in verse 11. Look at it with me. And they have conquered him. Who's, the, who's they? It's the brothers in verse 10. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. On the last day when Satan is finally conquered, Jesus is gonna look at us and say, I've done it, but you guys have done it. What are the three ways that you and I conquer Satan and the beasts that work for Satan? There's three things here. 
in verse 11. First of all, the word of their testimony. By speaking gospel. By saying Jesus is risen from the dead and he's now Lord of the universe. And while God has given us these wonderful gifts of sex and money and power, we as a Christian church refuse to worship them. We, we refuse to allow the system to use sex and money and power to seduce us to obey them and become their slaves. We will see them as God, God's good gifts, but we will continue to worship Jesus as Lord only. It's the testimony of our mouths. Second thing is, is through the blood of the lamb. That's actually the first thing. I should have mentioned that first, sorry, because it's first in the verse. By the blood of Jesus, we have become conquerors. You guys are participants in the blood of Christ. Paul says that for those who have faith, when you come to the rail, is not the participation of the cup a participation in the blood of Christ. The authority of the risen, crucified and risen and ascended Jesus is yours. It's been given to you in your baptism. It's been given to you by faith. It's been given to you in Holy Communion. The authority that you receive at the communion rail is the authority that you have at your job, in your home, in tiny ways to exercise the authority of the Lord of the universe in whatever way is appropriate. It's not gonna be some big thing. You're not gonna ever say something. I don't think that anybody in here is ever gonna say something or do something that's gonna topple the Nero's of this world. But as Christ's body, each of us are doing these little things that acknowledge Jesus is Lord, which are chipping away at his power, which on the last day, Jesus will say, yes, you, my 144,000, have been responsible through the power of the blood of the lamb to rescue the world. And then finally, the final tool that we have is our patient endurance from verse 11. To endure patiently. We have, loved our, we have not loved our lives even unto death. To say that my life eternal is more valuable than my life here. Riches eternal is more valuable than being wealthy here. Relationship with everybody in Christ's kingdom and Jesus himself is more powerful than cheap sex here. That the power of the kingdom to come is more powerful and more valuable than the little tiny powers I can get down here. To say, I am willing to trade this life for the life of the world to come. I am willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and not myself or not the, not, not the Nero's of the world. That's the hope of the Christian church. And along with that is the promise that Jesus is guaranteed now and always to rule and reign. Let's pray. God, be with us. As we come to your rail, convince us again that you are empowering us with your own self to be this witness, to be the witness by which the evil forces of this world will be toppled. We trust you for that. We know it will involve, to some extent, suffering, perhaps marginalization, Father, give us the courage and boldness to accept that knowing that what we're receiving in Jesus Christ in return is far greater, far more pleasurable, far more powerful than anything that we could imagine this world could offer us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Oh
stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for being a good God and for loving us, and for drawing us here to yourself and for saving us and uh, putting us on mission. Father, make us confident that you will rule and reign. You know how weak faith we are. You know how timid and scared we can get. You know how convinced, uh, easily con- convinced we are by the world that the Nero's of this world are in fact in charge and not you. Convince us afresh through your word and through your sacraments that you are the Lord of the universe. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for the different ministries that you've um, called this church to and um, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bless these and that your name would be glorified and that sinners would be drawn to you and saints would be sanctified and all the different ways that uh, the different gifts and callings that you've given our church. Just bless each one of us in those callings. For those of us who are not yet engaged in uh, serving our neighborhoods and our, uh, um, our workplaces and our friend groups with this announcement that Jesus is Lord, encourage us in that and build us up in the courage uh, to, to be faithful witnesses to you. I want to thank you especially this morning for... Uh, um, here at church, the technology team and the work that they do and the work that Larry does guiding and directing that, that you would bless them in their ministry. And it's easy to think of things that we do as not sacred, Lord, but we know that that's not true, that that's actually a false dichotomy and that um, everything that we do in your name is sacred and brings honor and glory to you. And so bless them. And we also pray uh, for one of our missions this week, the seminary food bank that we support and uh, bless them in that uh, endeavor to make food uh, inexpensive to our seminary students. And I pray that you would bless our seminaries and uh, the men and women who are being trained there to serve our church bodies. And um, uh, for Jacob, one of our own members who is a student there now, that you would bless him in his uh, preparation to be a, a pastor and that you would guide our church as a whole and guide us into truth and guide us into a mission and do it for your own honor and glory. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with everyone who's struggling, people who are struggling with uh, health concerns and uh, mental health concerns, physical health concerns, people who are struggling with financial worries, people who are struggling with sin, people who are struggling with guilt and shame. 
people who are struggling with uh, relationship brokenness with family members, people who are struggling with being upset with St. James Lutheran Church. Father, that you would bless all of us and that you would turn our eyes to you and help us to see and experience your resurrection power and, and know that you've made all things new and that you are in charge and that you can make new life out of broken situations because the resurrection of your son Jesus has guaranteed that to be our destiny. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you are a loving God and you have allowed us to come into your throne room. You have united us to your son, Jesus, and made us his brothers and sisters. And so we come and we sit on your lap and we pray these prayers to you as children to their dear father, counting on you to answer these according to your own goodwill, asking you to help us trust you for that will, and to know that you, what you do, you do for our good. What you do is what we would want done if we knew as much as you do. Help us to trust you for that will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you. O Lord, Holy Father, almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he's now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to you, O Lord, in the highest. And now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, Redeemer of the world, grant us peace. Amen. You may be seated. From sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall. Hear my desperation. 
this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around, find somebody you haven't spoken to in a while. Build community. Go in peace.